Welcome to Coffee's On. This is our inaugural episode, so welcome and thank you for being here. In today's episode, we are going to cover a fair amount of coffee history and origins. But before we dive in, we'd like to give you a brief introduction of ourselves. Hey there, everyone. My name is Wesley Van Hoosen, and I've been drinking coffee since I was 18. And that's mostly because of Richard. Living with him my freshman year of college, there was always hot coffee on. And yes, he would shout, coffee's on. After that, I was hooked. My background is mostly in food when it comes to why I always have coffee around me. As a server, coffee is literally the gasoline of our industry. And as a devoted drinker of coffee, especially with donuts, it's a rare occasion when there's not a pot of coffee ready to drink in my house. After all of these years of drinking coffee, I can easily say that my go-to is a mocha. And I'm Richard Isloffel, and I have been drinking coffee since I was about 14 years old, daily since I was about 15. My parents are big coffee connoisseurs, and from that, my interest, love, and consumption really blossomed, to the point where I knew I wanted to work as a barista somewhere. I was finally able to achieve that during the summer between my junior and senior year of college, where I worked at a small franchise company similar to Starbucks. Then, a little over a year later, I moved to a single, independently-owned coffee shop, where I worked for a little over half a year before moving to Chicago. Once my move was settled, I got a job at a well-known and loved coffee shop in the Andersonville neighborhood, where I worked for over a year and received some really incredible hands-on training, especially for espresso drinks. And though I haven't worked in a coffee shop in over four years, I love spending my downtime in local coffee houses, and will frequently spend my days off popping around the city to try out different coffee shops in different neighborhoods. And my drink of choice is the Cortado. Now, we will be going more in depth about our individual relationships with coffee, or what we call our coffee journeys, in the next episode. But we felt that it was appropriate to give you all a little taste of who we are and why we felt passionate enough about coffee to start this podcast. Now, before we jump into the meat of today's episode, we are, of course, going to try some coffee. This will be our regular opening ritual, because as much as we love talking about coffee, at a certain point, we just need to have some. Every episode, we will be starting with a hopefully well-prepared medium roast brewed manually with a V60 pour-over. We chose this for a couple of reasons. First, medium roast is thought to give the best flavor profile for the coffee bean on its own. We'll go into this a bit more later, but coffee doesn't just have a static, simple coffee taste. Depending on where it's grown, when it's harvested, how it's roasted, if it's single origin or a blend, coffee flavors can vary greatly. From earthy tones like chocolate, oats, caramel, and honey, to fruity notes with anything from cherries and blackberries to citrus and apples. So, as we select our coffees for each episode, we'll try to stick with mostly medium roast. And the brewing method, V60 pour-overs, which is a manual method of brewing as opposed to a percolator, drip brew, or espresso machine is like a medium roast, considered to be the best way to get the truest flavors of a select coffee and roast. We will cover the different methods of roasting in later episodes, but essentially what you need to know is it's a slow and methodical way to brew coffee that makes the most out of the individual beans. 
And lastly, since I am the one making the coffee, Wesley will be the one guessing at its flavors. Now, Wesley is a great cook and is really good at sussing out individual flavors in most dishes, but he's still new to coffee profiles. So this will be a fun way of finding out how these coffees really taste. We'd also like to note here that we are not at this time sponsored by any of these roasting companies, nor were we given this copy as a donation, promotion, or gift. We have reached out to several local roasters in the Chicago area to see if they're interested in sending us their beans to try on the show, and we're always looking for suggestions. If you have a roast you'd like us to try on the show, please email us at coffeezon at arcadiapodcastnetwork.com. That being said, today's roast we were able to pick up at a local grocery store, in fact the one right across from my house. This roast comes from Metropolis, which I would say is definitely one of the big three of the Chicago roasters, including Intelligentsia and Dark Matter. I will say, Metropolis is probably the most commercialized or distributed of the three in the city, as in, you can find it in the most coffee shops and grocery stores. In fact, many of the Chicago roasting companies not only have their own coffee shops, but have partnerships or are suppliers of dozens of local coffee shops throughout the city. So if you duck into a dollop coffee shop in River North, you might be drinking a Metropolis blend. Or if you go to the coffee studio in Andersonville, you'll be drinking Intelligentsia. It's actually a great way of making sure that it all stays local. But today's roast is called Skyway from Metropolis. It is a medium dark roast, and though it isn't Metropolis's best-selling medium roast, there is a specific reason why I chose this one. So, Wesley? Yeah? If you want to do the honors and tell me what flavors you found or detected from this particular roast. Well, I like to go off smell first, so I always smell something before I eat it. It's a pretty good life rule, I find. Uh, so the first thing I really got was a smell of campfire. So really like maybe it's cedar. Cause I know you can find cedar in coffee, but I really got like a woody smell, right? Like kind of like burnt wood, uh, tasting it. The first hit of it, it's, um, kind of got a little bit of a burnt sugar taste to it. It smells like caramel. Like when you grind the beans, it smells very sugary. So I was actually surprised this was as dark as it tasted, and the last one I got before adding cream, because I usually drink coffee with cream, um, is uh, a little hint of ginger. I got like a little bit of a, that like zing. It wasn't a citrusy zing, though. It was like a bright, bright note zing. So I'm like, that that's gingery to me. But right at the end, you really had to keep it on your tongue for a good like five to ten seconds before you could get that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, you're not wrong. I, I found very similar flavors. I agree with the campfire. Um, I, I had the word smoky. It kind of yeah. has that kind of smokiness Definitely. to it. Um, and I thought a little grainy as well. It actually reminded me of a, of a dry porter or stout uh, beer. I, yes. I know you don't know those as well. But I know stouts, so yes. I do enjoy a good stout. But that's what I found a lot out of it. And it's interesting that you mentioned burnt sugar mm-hmm. or caramel. I had molasses. Okay, yeah. So that kind of, I always think of molasses as tree sugar. Yeah, it's basically sugar that's before it's processed. Yeah. You know, it's it's got the, or well, molasses is a byproduct, but like, you know, it's got the, it's what makes brown sugar brown sugar is molasses. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, 
Now, with that in mind, do you want me to read the description to see how close we were on it? Yes. I mean, obviously, I already know it. But... Sure. Yeah, I'm not allowed to see these listeners before each episode. So Richard literally had to like hide the bag of coffee from me <laughs> while we were making it. Now, once I read the description, it's going to be the last word on the description as to why I chose this particular blend sure. uh, for you, Wesley. Okay. So here we go. So from Metropolis, they say that the Skyway blend is full-bodied and bold with a hint of roast and smoke. This fair trade certified blend drinks like a cola. Oh, okay. So for those of you who don't know us, Wesley is also a huge fan of Coca-Cola. So when I saw that as a descriptor, I knew I had to choose it for him. So do you any do you taste those flavors Let now me, that I mentioned them? Well, hmm, I've added cream. Mm-hmm. It definitely has like kind of the same mouthfeel as a cola. Like, I think that's where that sugariness maybe mm-hmm. was from. I think the molasses with yeah. a little of that kick of ginger taste that you. Uh, yeah, felt. I feel. Yeah. And that's maybe what the ginger is trying to insinuate mm-hmm. is that like slight because Coca-Cola has cloves in it. And so that's kind of where you get that spiciness in a Coca-Cola. But mm-hmm. I, I can see that with ginger, definitely. Like, yeah. no, that's really interesting. I will say I was surprised at how dark this tastes for yes. a medium roast. Me too. I, I associate uh, grains and smoke and things like that, like I would with a porter or a stout with dark roast coffee. Yes. And this is described as a medium dark roast, but I still felt like it was more heavily on the dark roast side in terms of flavor. Yeah, I find that kind of happens a lot too with the locally produced medium roasts. They they tend to have a lot more of the darker notes. It's almost like, I think of it in musical terms. So to me, it's almost like a medium roast, but you have bass boost on. Like it's got just the heavy flavor to it. Absolutely. But it's not as zingy or like, like thick on the mouth like a dark roast coffee would be yeah and as someone like myself who prefers a dark roast even in a drip brew uh this is definitely a medium roast that i would probably buy on on its own yeah um, for for regular everyday consumption and i'm interested to see too how it tastes on the drip because we made a batch of this listeners in my like hamilton beach coffee drip (laughs) coffee maker so i'm interested to see because I am still new to V60. And to me, this is such a better way of, like you said, sussing out flavors. I loved that sentence. But I wonder, you know, if there's any like differences in a drip brew. And we also uh, freshly ground these beans, which definitely makes a massive, massive difference. That will always help the flavor profile. If you want to get more of the individual flavors of a bean, you'll have to blend them mm-hmm. right before you brew them yes that's the best way to get that out um obviously the best thing you could do is roast them buy them then immediately use them but right. i know that's not available for everybody i'm getting more flavors because it's getting different temperatures so you get different yeah things at different levels so now how does it taste with the cream too does with that... cream it's very very full like it's very almost like cowboy coffee kind of like that consistency Ooh, that's of fun. like it's but it's not as like tar heavy as like a percolator coffee mm-hmm. or things like that but i'm starting to get not really any fruity notes um maybe like obviously there's cream in it so cream is a flavor but um 
I don't know. I'm definitely getting the sugar cane with milk. Cause, or with half and half. I have half and half. And that in and of itself is a sweet, sweeter because it's heavy, heavier in the fat. But yeah, I definitely get that cola idea once it hits a cooler temperature. Yeah, especially in, like you said, mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. I think you get that cola sensation with just the drink of it. Yes, it's very satiating coffee. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not like, uh, it's not so pumped full of things that it's the consistency it is because of that. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Then let me ask you this: Would you prefer this as a morning blend to wake you up, or would you prefer this as an afternoon pick me up, like go meet friends for coffee? This is a dessert coffee. Dessert coffee for me, yes, because when with the cola you also have a little bit of vanilla in there too and especially with the cream in there so to me this would go really well with well chocolate obviously everything goes well with coffee and chocolate but um this would be really good for like maybe an after dinner coffee if you're not if you're having a really light dessert maybe a fruity dessert because there's no fruit notes to this no and so it'd be interesting to play around with that like kind of like the idea of eating it you know eating something and then having a sip of soda to like kind of gel with the flavor. Coca-Cola goes with food. This is like a coffee. It's meant well when they say cola. It's mm-hmm. a coffee that matches well with food. Absolutely. Sweet food probably yes. would be my taste. Mm-hmm. But that's really interesting. You know, it's so interesting to do the V60 and really capture flavor cuz to me coffee for so long, you know, is just uh it's wake up in the morning I'm not going to sing the Kesha song, go to the coffee maker, you know, put the grounds in, go take a shower. You know, it's just like your routine. But to actually sit and like see the flavor develop, feel it, you know, or, you know, watch the brew process is very interesting, too, because I'm not familiar with that. You know, absolutely. And like I said, listeners, we will discuss the different brewing methods on later episodes. Yes. Uh, But V60, we found I've found and I've learned, been educated through my time working in coffee shops that it's truly one of the best ways to bring out all of the flavors in your specific roast. So if you really want to get into the specifics of coffee, of their actual flavor palettes, then opting for a V60 uh, pour over or uh, Chemex pour over is a really great option. It does take a bit of concentration, a bit of education, and a couple of failed attempts in order to actually produce a good uh, cup of coffee from a V60. It is pretty meticulous, I will say, as as brewing methods go. Uh, but when you get it right, boy, do you get it right? Yeah, and you know the the other thing too is that you know we don't want anyone to think that we're trying to um denigrate how they make their coffee. I am a tried and true drip coffee maker queen. I love Absolutely. drip coffee. Me like too. I love drip coffee. I love espresso. I love V sixty. I love Chemex. I have a friend that has a Chemex. French press is probably my least favorite of all the different things. Really, But, you know, we just want you to know that we're doing V60, like Richard said, solely to really pick out the flavor compounds. And also, you know, if you want to buy this coffee, um, like Richard said, it is available nationwide at Whole Foods. I know. Not sponsored. We're not sponsored by any of these stores or these brands. 
Um, I know that here in Chicago, you can buy it at Target. I think in Nebraska, you can buy it at Target. But um, Metropolis Coffee is available nationwide. You can go on their website as well. Again, this blend was Skyway. Yes. Yes, Skyway. Skyway blend. So when it is a blend, that means it's uh, multiple origin uh, coffee beans. So if you really want very specific coffee flavors, go with a single origin. Single origin means it was made on a single farm. So all of those beans come from pretty much neighboring trees, uh, as opposed to a blend where it's picked from different areas in order to create a certain flavor palette. Sure. Would you almost say that's equivalent of like a small batch whiskey as opposed to like a big brand? Potentially. Kind of like, kind yes. of like in metaphor, maybe. Yes. I would say more of a single malt versus blended. If that's we're better. talking whiskey. Okay, for sure. Yeah. Uh, because single malt, it all comes from the same alcohol. thing. Blended is multiple whiskeys coming together to form a certain Got profile. It. Okay. So, um, Closer to that, obviously, it's still its own thing. But sure, it's sure. Closer to that analogy. Cool. Well, yeah. So, Metropolis Coffee. It is my favorite of the big Chicago three coffees. Dark Matter comes in second. Intelligentsia is third. Yes. But Intelligentsia, uh, I hinted at it there. You can find Intelligentsia at the coffee studio. That's the place I actually worked yes. here in Chicago when I moved here. So, I am familiar with their coffee because that's what we used. Uh, but I will say in terms of flavor profiles, I prefer Metropolis. They tend to have more of those darker, more robust flavors, which I prefer. Yes. I, I think the first bag of coffee I bought for my parents when I lived here, I bought one, my dad a bag of Intelligentsia's espresso blend, which I don't think they make anymore. The Black Hat Espresso? The Black Hat Espresso? They probably do still as okay. an espresso. Yeah, I bought my dad that. My I bought my mom a bag of Metropolis, like their their like most popular like whatever they make coffee Metropolis. And my mom's addicted to Metropolis. It coffee. might be the Granville. Yes, I think that's it is their that. standard yes, medium roast. Yeah, because you can buy it ground. Absolutely. But anyway, so, yeah, really good, really good coffee. So yeah, I really wonderful. liked it. Well, I'm glad we went through all that. And I know as we go through more of the tastings in future episodes, we'll cut it a little short on the descriptors and the uh, the introduction of why we're using the V60. But we just wanted to give you an idea of why we chose this, why it works well for what we're doing. And we hope that you might find your next favorite coffee from one of these suggestions. Yeah. Think of this first episode as like syllabus day. <laughs> you just have to we have to give you all the rundown, but you'll get used to it. Um, what's next? What are we doing next? Absolutely. So next, we're really going to dive into the meat of this episode, which is the origins of coffee, a brief history and how we got here. Awesome. Today, let's take a quick break so I can refill my coffee and then we'll get into the history. Absolutely. Me as well. Well, update listeners, from the drip, it doesn't taste as good. Just flat out. I mean, it, it tastes like coffee. It's good, but it does not have near the same definition. No, I, I lost some of the smokiness. Yeah. I got more chocolate from it, though, with the drip and with some half and half. Sure, yeah. I can t I can sense that. I get more woodiness with cream and from the drip. It's like got much more of that kind of like grainy texture like you were or like not texture, but just like taste, I guess. Yeah. Grain. Oatmeal-y. Yeah. Wheat. Kind of yeah. just like a. I can see that. Something I can, I, that. I can roll around in a field of. <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, 
Um, if you've ever listened to the dog show, we're getting a dog, you know that I'm obsessed with history and that doesn't change for coffee's on. So I'm going to take you through kind of just the origin story of coffee. It's very long. And if you know me, I research a lot. So I'm, I'm going to take you right up until now. So, um, yeah, well, if there's anything that's stockpiled in my cabinet, it's coffee. God, I even hate that sentence reading it. Uh, I hate all of this. We know this dark broth to be a lifeline when it comes to handling our jobs, combating our stressors, and conversing with friends. I, I wrote this, by the way. Richard did not write this. Um, but that didn't start with Starbucks or Dunkin'. They, like all coffee houses, are some in a long line of such places where intellect and necessity meet. For centuries, coffee has been the drink to contemplate, rejuvenate, and inspire. I couldn't find a third word that rhymed. I remember trying desperately when I wrote that. (laughs) Century after century, this bean and the drink we make from it has spread its way around from its tall tale origins. With every cup, with every conversation, with all the possibility of everyday promise, coffee has become the drink of the world. So yeah, that's my really um, wordy and... All my college professors would hate me. Intro paragraph. <laughs> I will make fun of my writing on this show. I told him earlier, it reads as if you were trying to write the book. Yeah. And I may have been. To be read, not to be spoken. <laughs> I know. This makes me wonder how audiobook narrators feel when they're like, God, this book sucks. What if the audio narrator just <laughs> hates the book? Oh, can we curse on this show? I forget. That's fine. I'll bleep it. Because I don't want to curse a ton because it is educational. But no, it is it, it that it kind of does crack me up. But that's how you wrote. Well, anyway, so back to the history. So the first recorded use of coffee was at the tail end of the classical period of Arabia, which was before the full influence and the rise of uh, Islam, the religion. Um, coffee there was originally used as a medicine. That's about as specific as the text got. Um, so a man named Razi's, and I'm going to mess all of these names up because I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska, and I don't know how to pronounce anything unless it's in Spanish. So his full name was Abu Bakar Muhammad Ibn Zakaria El Razi. That's about the best I can do, folks. Um, he was a leading Persian scholar and doctor who was the first person to mention coffee under the name uh, Buncham or Buncham, maybe, in his Encyclopedia of Known Medicines. It was used, apparently, to help treat stomach ailments. And then not much later, uh, another writer named Avicenna um, was another uh, Mohammedan physician and scholar, and he found the coffee bean, or bun, if that name sounds familiar to anyone who works in a restaurant, um, or has a bun coffee maker, Uh, He found that the coffee bean was useful to cleanse the skin and gave a nice smell to oneself, which I think is kind of funny. (laughs) It's a nice smell. And I believe, I don't know if it's written in this uh, particular doctrine uh, or um, tale, but I believe that his discovery of it, it was somewhere on the Arabian Arabian Peninsula, excuse Mm me, where he, at least the story I found, that he was cast out of a city that he lived in. I don't know if you found this in your notes or if this is referring to a different person, but he was cast out of a city he lived in. This is a different person. Different person. Yes. Are you getting I, to that? I am getting to okay, this. Okay, yeah. cool. Other early accounts from the late 9th century are from Java, um, which is also infamous for where the 
volcano Krakatawa is or was, where an inscription describes a, quote, bean broth, which was called uh, Ouiji Kawi. Um, it was among the Javanese beverages at that time in the ninth century. It isn't clear if the coffee bean was actually the ingredient, but it's very possible that that's what it was if it was a popular drink, but we don't know for sure. The most common story of how we have coffee uh, if it was found is not actually documented. What may have been a true story at one point in time has now, in our modern era, grown into a very tall tale. So the story dates back to the 9th century in the region of Ethiopia, or what is now Ethiopia. Um, an Abyssinian man named Kaldi and his herd of goats were wandering around somewhere in the wild Ethiopian forests. Several of his goats had eaten the berries off of a tree that had made them energetic, loud, and unable to sleep. He then told the local monks, or abbots, um, the varying stories use these terms interchangeably, of the berries that made his goats so full of energy. However, the monks were not friendly to the notion of a plant that could have such effects. And this is where the story, this is where the story starts to get very tall. So thinking it was the devil's work, the monks tossed the beans Caldi had brought into a fire. The aroma of the, quote, roasting beans uh, was so heavenly to the monks that he fetched the beans out of the fire, snuffed out the embers, and then poured hot water over them in an attempt to preserve them. He drank what he made, which was this like seemingly accidental cup of joe, and the monks found the benefits to be very useful. Um, it helped them stay awake to pray. So they were like, oh, wow, this actually helps me devote more time to God. It's not a bad thing. As the monks began using the coffee berry drink, they also began to tell the monks of other monasteries about its effects and how to make it. So this gets us now to 1000 AD. Um, another drink was made using the hull and whole bean. Um, from there, that's kind of the idea of like the earliest versions of coffee, the beverage. Um, I don't know if you found anything different or if anything's kind of sounding strange. No, that's about it. I yeah. found that it was monks that uh, kind of perf not perfected it, but actually created it into a drink. Yes. Up until then, it was mostly eaten. Yeah. Um, the berries or the roasted seeds yeah. uh, or the roasted berries were eaten to give people energy. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, everything I found is down to that one Ethiopian uh, guy shepherd called who yeah. uh called who who discovered it by accident because of watching the behavior of his sheep i will say though uh you mentioned that he was in the forests of ethiopia i yes. think it was actually or what i've found it was the mountains because they were that growing makes at higher sense. altitudes that makes better sense. um and we know no matter what uh with this tall tale we know ecologically that and historically, that coffee does come from Ethiopia. That yeah. is the actual source of coffee. So yes. even if this is just a tall tale, we still know that factually it does come from Ethiopia. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So this is kind of, like I said, this drink that was made out of the hull and the whole bean. That was sort of, I. that's, I guess, the earliest idea of a cup of coffee. Um, so that started to be established by these monks within the Arabian Peninsula, so those are now the modern day countries of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates, Yemen, and the archipelago of Bahrain. 
The history and ruling of northeastern Africa and the Middle East uh, were very different at this time. Uh, the lands of Ethiopia from the 9th century onwards were ruled by varying empires and people prior to the modern government that's been established today. So, yeah, and it, of course we all know the Middle East is unfortunately rife with political issue, but at this time they were mostly, uh, this was sort of like the Ottoman Empire, pre-Ottoman Empire even. Mm-hmm. So um, this takes us now to the 1200s, moving along. Yeah, there we go. Um, so another origin story comes from the 1200s, and this is about, I think, the guy that gets thrown out of Mecca. Yeah, that's the other one I Yeah, found. so his name is Sheikh Abu al-Hassan Ash-Shadhili, which I did practice that one. <laughs> um, in his legendary account, he found birds feasting on the coffee berry, and they had gained an unusual vitality from eating the berry. He tried the berries for himself and discovered coffee therein. Uh, Another story comes from his own disciple, whose name was Omar, whose legend was recorded in the Abd al-Qadir manuscript, which you can find online, um, or at least like versions of the stories told in it. Yeah. Omar was known to be able to cure the sick through prayer, and he was famous throughout Mecca for his uh, heavy, like his intense prayer skill. But... Of course, when you start claiming you can cure people, you're going to get accused of being like a malinfluent. So uh, he and his followers were accused of moral remissance and they were shunned uh, from Mecca around 1258. So they were kind of wandering around Mecca. They were starving and desperate. And uh, they himself and his followers near they are in a cave in distant Arabia, which could be anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, They tried to eat the berries from the coffee tree, but found them too bitter. So then he tried to cook them, but they became too hard to eat. Finally, he tried to soften them with hot water and found that they made a drink. So after discovering the, quote, broth, they're all called broths at this point still, they managed to survive on it for a few days. And it's kind of speculated now that the reason they survived on it was because they were drinking water. And that when you drink water and you don't have food, you'll live longer because your body can live a lot longer without food than it can without water and because they were boiling it in order to achieve the broth it was killing any it was, potential d- yes, diseases it and was infections purifying and it yeah purifying it and, and it, virtually yeah so i mean but at the same time great story so um anyway so he discovered this drink and they survived on it and then he brought it back to mecca as an offering um he cited it as a miracle helper and uh, it helped because it helped him and his followers survive just because they drank it. Um, he was promptly allowed back into Mecca because they saw he had indeed survived and they thought he must be blessed by, you know, our God. And so he was promptly made into like whatever the equivalent of a saint is in that religion. Um, and then other uses of the caffeine laced berry at that time also consisted of a kind of power bar of sorts. Uh, it was made from animal fat, which was most likely butter, lard, or suet. When I actually tried to find recipes of this from then, and at least in the 1600s in England, it was suet. So it was still being made at that time, though. You could take ground coffee, mix it with suet. You had, a, in essence, an energy bar. Yeah, and I think the, the energy bar, power bar of this comes from the shepherds and and other monks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The idea is that they could blend the coffee with the animal fat, put it into a ball or bar or yeah. something, and they'd have something to last them for days out 
yes. uh, shepherding their animals. And this recipe evolved even because the original accounts I find talked about that they squashed the berry into the fat. And by the time I found a recipe for it, it was roasted coffee. It was or coffee it, beans. There was, it, it was, was that far. It, it was that far along. In yeah. History. Because into the 1600s, at least, because I found a recipe when it just said prepared. It said like coffee grounds in the recipe I found. So I'm like, oh, to me, that says this was still being used, but it was with suet. Again, we don't know the fat that they used in the Arabian Peninsula because suet comes from pork. I don't know where suet comes from, actually. You would know better than I. I don't cook with it because I'm not a, I'm not British. <laughs> They, we can't readily purchase suet. It's in interesting <laughs> that it it implied coffee grounds as well, because that makes it seem that it is the bean made for the drink. Yes. So that the bean was taken out of the coffee berry, washed, dried, roasted, then ground for the intent of brewing coffee. Yes. So clearly that recipe is from recent enough in our history where they're actually making coffee as a drink yes and as opposed to eating the berries eating whole. the berries whole yes so and, and maybe it is just coincidence that they this recipe maybe just was made out of happenstance and they happen to you know say hey if we put fat with this coffee it's an easy thing to eat it, it's possible you know ideas sometimes happen twice you know because it would it, it would be interesting to see that recipe both with ground like roasted ground coffee as we know it today and the berry yes i'll have to find it cuz i know it was in some like online database source of like ancient english and it's in old english which is practically german so you have to learn how to read it Oh, I should just learn German. Well, anyway, so, uh, yeah, the uh, one other thing that they would do, some cultures would cook the coffee berries into porridge, and they would also use the fruit and skins to make a wine. So ca- the coffee berry itself, before we ever discovered roasting, the methodic roasting we do now, you know, that was really kind of brought up, which I'll get to, actually, I'll get up, I'll get to where that was invented. Um it's interesting that it was already being made into a wine. I think it's interesting it was a wine. A wine A wine first, maybe first. Potentially first. Prior to like the mass consumption of coffee as we know it now. Well, at this point they had tea was well known and wine was well tea known. Tea heavily predates coffee. Like, yes. yeah. So I think the roasting, because tea is dried. It's not roasted. It's dried. Right. So the idea of roasting something to brew it right is a fairly recent concept or newer concept than fermenting or i mean just inherently because you have to think about you have to apply heat in order to roast you have to do it in a way that gets it right Mm -hmm. and with tea all you have to do is just put some leaves out in the sun on a hot rock and then put it into your glass of water like very easy tea was much easier and plus tea was mostly grown in china which meant it was very available because, you know, China has a very long recorded history. So anyways, this is not a tea podcast. (laughs) Maybe we'll do that someday if we get enough British listeners. Tea versus coffee. (laughs) That'll be an episode. Tough. That's tough for me. But anyways. Yes. So now we're uh, to the end of the 13th century. So by the end of the 13th century, these beans were now being roasted regularly. So sometime between these monks discovering it and the 13th century, 
roasting had been utilized regularly in the production of coffee. Um, and the traditional cup of coffee we know today was at that point in its infancy. So there's a huge gap between the 13th and 15th centuries now where there's no written evidence of coffee becoming available or culturally popular. And I don't know if you found anything. There's not a lot of recorded history about those times. Granted, it was the Dark Ages. So once we enter the 15th century, information is like all the time about coffee. There's so much. Um, the one vivid account is by Abd al-Qadir al-Jaziri. He gave a written account that gave a very clear path for how coffee was spread through the Arabian Peninsula between the 13th and 15th centuries. So Jaziri's coffee history tells of a Sufi named Imam Muhammad ibn Said al-Dabani, who was known to import goods from Ethiopia, coffee among them, to Yemen by Somali merchants from Berbera and Zayla, which is now modern-day Somaliland. Somaliland. That's how you pronounce it, yeah. Yes, Somaliland. Um, he, he transported the beans to the all-too-appropriate port named Mocha, uh, and from there he started a long-lasting trade of coffee between Ethiopia and Yemen. So, so that he established first getting coffee out of Ethiopia into the hands not only of Ye the Yemen people in Yemen, of Yemen, Yemenis, Yemenites. I believe so. Yemenis. Um, Yemenis. But also the there were uh the merchants were were Somali. So other cultures were becoming aware of what this drink was. Yes. And because uh, keep yes, in mind ahead. this came out of Ethiopia and a lot of the history, early history is from the Arabian Peninsula, which yeah. is across the Red Sea. Yes. So it had to get there somehow. Exactly. So you have this massive influence of trade between uh, the eastern coast of Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, mm -hmm. and that's how essentially all of this coffee got from one place to another. So grown in Africa, brought to the Arabian Peninsula uh, by trade, by... Um, possibly just bringing plants along for study, things of that nature. Uh, the other interesting thing that I want to point out is we've, we're throwing a lot of names out yes. uh, of where of origins and where people are from. And some of these names probably sound familiar if you've drank coffee for a long time. You're hearing mocha and java and things like that. This is where these names come from. Exactly. That's part of the history of coffee or the origin places of coffee um, a lot of coffees are named after where they come from they're not just given a random name it's part of the uncreativity of the english language <laughs> where we name things based on where they're from what they do or how they do it so you'll <laughs> um, and a lot of that's based off of blend names as well so java blend mocha blend sumatran sumatran uh colombian colombian so these are all beans that are special for those regions flavors that are special for those regions which we'll get more into later about the actual production of coffee yeah um i will say you did start to mention how it was getting throughout the arabian peninsula and i do i will pick up right there for you so uh in the same account by abd kalka nope who is he dabani it's the dabani one he so Dabani told of his use of coffee to fellow circles of Sufis. And from there, the Sufis, who I think are sort of like, they're like dedicated spiritual people in, in a way. They're not like monks. So. This is, I, when I was doing my research, I found that 
Sufi Sufi monks yes. was used together. Okay, a lot. I know that's not what they are, but that's I think it's our hard best to, way of explaining. Yeah, them. it's difficult to find an explanation for them because even within googling what is a Sufi, it's the most gen. It's like religious person. It's like hilariously high. Pro- like, wow, who would have guessed? Google. <laughs> So that's the best I can do for you on what a Sufi is. If anyone knows or if anyone ha- can give us a history on that, you can email us at coffeezon at arcadiapodcastnetwork.com. Please. Don't berate us, though. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. We're doing the best we can with these names. I think I'm doing okay. I think, no, I think you're doing fantastic. <laughs> I looked up a lot. So, um, But anyway, so he, he used his... Um, within the circle of Sufis is how he spread this drink around. Um, The legend and the use of this quote, magical drink. A lot of accounts describe coffee as magical, which I think is really hilarious for some reason. I keep getting these flashes of like old West, like, Come on down and step up. I have a miracle cure-all for everyone. Like, I'm yeah, thinking so like, that in, like, kind of miracle potion you, kind of a thing. You get your miracle cure-all, then you go see the bearded lady. Exactly. And that's, the baby with four arms. That's what I keep thinking every yeah. time I hear miracle drink. It's just P.T. Barnum peddling coffee. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, the legend of this drink went up to Mecca and then Medina. And Medina was another really big city in the Arabian Peninsula. And then throughout the 15th century, it started to spread to other major cities and ports throughout Northern Africa, Europe, and the what we call today the Middle East. Um, the port of Mocha was reportedly responsible for all coffee trade prior to the European invasions and the cultivations of their own coffee plantations. So for a long, I mean, centuries, the port of Mocha was the only port that gave, got coffee throughout the Arabian Peninsula. And I think that's really interesting. It's just such a, it's like, that's the coffee port. I kind of like that idea that it's just a dedicated place for coffee. Yes. Yeah. And you'll get into it later, but I like how they, one of the reasons why it was dedicated is because the, the Arabs of the, that area wanted to keep it secret. They did not want the coffee plant being discovered and yeah being taken to grow elsewhere they, they wanted, wanted a monopoly exactly that's what i was just gonna say yeah they did it we'll was... dig into that in just a second here yeah it so we will okay <laughs> so coffee houses began to appear around this time as well so in bigger cities like cairo cairo i really want to, i would we need to go to cairo okay. that's my next city is cairo okay because i want to see the pyramids, pyramids. And you know how much I love ancient Egypt. You guys, I made Richard walk through like an hour long Egypt tour in a museum in Germany because I wanted to see sarcophagi. And he was like, oh, please do something else. Yes, (laughs) it was cool. I was just tired. We were really tired that day. Yeah, that was the day we had to get the hell out of the we figured out to get the fuck out. Yeah, because of the pandemic. Although the bust of Nefertiti. Nefertari. Nefertari. No, it was Nefertiti. Yeah, Nefertari. That was beautiful. One. That room was also gorgeous. That bust. It's that one is, bust oh my in God. a giant room that's all like dark green marble. It was on loan from the Cairo yeah. Museum. It was gorgeous. And you couldn't take photos. No. But it's the it's the famous color mask of Queen Nefertiti. Anyway, I love I love Egypt. We so in Cairo, the original coffee houses were placed uh were places of scholarly importance. So it was where ideas could be traded and discussed, where 
scholars could meet with other scholars with their apprentices, apprenti, I think it's apprentices. Um, I like just like to add the I on to sound pretentious. Pretentious eye. So much of these lands uh, in the Horn of Africa and Eastward were ruled at that time by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and it is suspected they were originally given coffee by the Levantine or Levantine Arabs or peoples populating areas of modern day Jordan, Syria, Palestine and Lebanon. Uh, an Ottoman governor discovered what is commonly known today as Turkish coffee, which was being made in Yemen first. So it did not come from Turkey. It came from Yemen. Um, but it was made popular in modern day Turkey. Uh, after introducing it to a sultan. No, I have his name. Yeah. After introducing it to Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, which I'm sure was not his name in English. Like, you know, I wonder if that was the true translation, though. His or, given name? Yeah, I'm, I Did doubt his name was Magnificent. Name? I bet it's something in his own language is yeah. what I mean. Um, so after the Magnificent got it, it quickly became a cultural staple of the Ottoman Empire. And then by 1453, the Ottoman Turks had introduced their preparation of coffee to Rome via, oh God, I always have trouble with this one. Constantinople. 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 So I'm going to say that again. By 1453, the Ottoman Turks had introduced their preparation of coffee uh, to Rome via Constantinople and established the first coffee house there, which was named Kiva Han. It does not exist. Don't go try finding it. <laughs> like... <laughs> But it was, they had the name. So then by 1554, um, so now we're moving ahead about 100 years, coffee houses were opening in Syria and the metropolis of Aleppo and the Ottoman capital of Istanbul. As the Ottoman Empire spread the popularity of Turkish coffee. So they were only making Turkish coffee. This was the only coffee drink recorded. The only brew method. Brew method yes. in the Ottoman Empire that I could find. Um so as the Ottoman Empire spread this, the popularity of Turkish coffee, uh, all of the coffee beans were being sold, still sold out of the port of Mocha in Yemen. Can I say here, too, uh, I find it interesting that coffee houses, even at their earliest recordings, were places for intellectuals to gather. Yes. We always, I feel like even still, we think of coffee houses as... Uh, cultural hubs where people come to whether they're working on something educational students go there to study uh you know people go there to discuss ideas uh -huh. all these different kinds of things uh, we think of them as these kind of intellectual gathering places it's true and i find it very interesting that the very first coffee houses were used for this same purpose yeah I think of the Family Guy sketch where it's like, I got to go to Starbucks so other writers can see me writing. Exactly. <laughs> but no, it is true, though. I mean, I honest to God think coffee was used for the same reasons we use it today, which is to start our days you know, or like give us our give ourselves a pick me up. Yeah. And it stimulates your body, stimulates your mind, helps you focus. Yeah. And makes you want to achieve to talk to do things to be productive definitely and i think that at the very beginning they noticed that's what it did and so what better way to use that focus uh, than education like you had mentioned earlier prior to the 17th century the coffee market was completely controlled by arab traders so they did have the monopoly on the product they would bake or boil the beans prior to manufacture to defertilize them. So 
coffee beans leaving were not, they couldn't, you couldn't plant them in the ground and grow them. However, a Sufi by the name of Baba Budin managed to sneak seven fertile coffee beans out of the port of Mocha, and he then brought that plant, those plants to India. It was first grown in India in the hills of Chikmagalur in the present-day state of Karnataka. Baba Budin is also buried there, which I think is very sweet. It was not long before the Dutch arrived in India and began to colonize. And then along with colonization came the discovery of all these things. It's, you know, they established the spice trade essentially around the world and the Dutch East Indies come in. And then, you know, coffee was among one of those things that they thought was like, oh, this is this exotic you know, coffee drink that can only be found here. Because they might have had it from the Middle East as far as like Constantinople and Turkey and places like that. Or uh, Alexandria and Egypt too. Yes, but they probably were not able to get a hold of the plant until it was smuggled out, planted in India and grown there. Exactly. The import, I bet you too, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of the Roman Empire, there had to have been some kind of insane import fee you know from yemen or you know especially when you get into areas like france and england like they're so far up the map it's like how do they even get coffee unless you know they're growing it themselves which is exactly which was exactly what happened in the long run so um it's said that in 1616 the dutch merchant and employee of the dutch east india company named pieter van den Broek, Okay, uh, I should Peter Vandenbroek. I'm I should know how to pronounce Dutch names. Uh, he went straight to the port of Mocha and he managed to steal coffee plants from the plantations there. He then brought the fertile plants to Amsterdam where they tried to grow them. And you know what? Coffee doesn't grow in the Netherlands. No. So it just is not the right climate. So they utilized the trade routes that had been established with their company. And they then took the plant to uh, Batavia, which is present day Jakarta. And in Java in 1696, and found that it could be grown there in the climate because it's along a, a specific area of the world where you can grow coffee, which we'll talk about in another episode. So uh, it's called the Coffee Belt. This caused a large shift in the coffee market. So by the 18th century, Amsterdam replaced Mocha as the world's largest coffee trading capital because of all of the plantations they had been put not only in Java and um, uh, Batavia or Jakarta, but also in Sri Lanka, Ceylon, which is now just part of Sri Lanka. So they had taken this plant and they had plantations all over this, these areas of the world. And they, it obviously it made it cheaper to import into Europe. It was at this time that most of Europe found coffee in their own way. So Great Britain, Spain, Italy, Austria, France, and Poland originally had gotten coffee imported from Mocha or the Ottoman Empire, whoever it was given to them first. But then um, once the world powers shifted, the Roman Empire fell, the British Empire rose, the European world powers. This is when Europe became a world power mm-hmm. in that time. You know, there the were all these, yeah, there were all these kingdoms, all these different royal houses of royalty, and they were all trading with one another. And so it was at this point that all these European world powers during the seven, you know, 1700s, 1800s, they would go on to establish their own coffee plantations. France specifically went to the Caribbean. 
Spain went to Central America and Portugal went to Brazil. Um, so, and they're still there. Uh, the establishment of these plantations would mean the end of the need for trade within the Arabian Peninsula's share of the coffee market. So, in essence, uh, you know, the British, Dutch, and French trading companies that colonized in all of these countries, genocides, you know, slavery, all these terrible things, this shut out the Arabian Peninsula from the coffee market. And it kind of it really hurt the trade there. And so since 1852 now, uh, Brazil has been the largest producer of coffee in the world, and they have remained so ever since. So they were growing these plants on their colonies. So keep in mind when we're saying that they grew these plants, they were doing it on plantations on the colonies that they had conquered. um, Because as uh, Wesley mentioned earlier, that coffee can only be grown in... Uh, the coffee belt, essentially the the most uh, the around the equator is where it grows. So it just doesn't work in uh, northern colder climates like Europe or North America. So these countries, uh, these uh, superpowers, were growing coffee in plantations that they owned and then roasting it and selling it in these northern markets so in america in canada in europe throughout europe yeah so because of this they really shrunk and shut out all of the arabian peninsula the arabian peninsula was able to trade really just with itself and a little bit with africa but they were pretty much massively downsized from the monopoly they had for probably 500 years 700 years I'd 700 say. and what ended up it did i you know i would even go so far as to say just by inference that it may have contributed to the fall of the ottoman empire and the splitting up of the middle east as to what where it is kind of in the modern day because when the ottoman empire fell that set up the middle east for the political structure we have basically today and so and I need to do more research about that in particular. But I wonder if that whole process of basically taking away one of their main exports to the world had a hand in sort of just financially displacing the empire. And, you know, all empires fall. So there's got there's a lot to the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. So but when we think about how much tea is consumed, especially by England. Yeah. What they got from India and from China. Sure. Trade that with coffee for the rest of the world, and it's no wonder. Like mm-hmm. it was, it's, it's an absolute powerhouse of a commodity, and probably one of the few major commodities coming out of the Arabian Peninsula until the discovery of oil. So now we're up to the modern era. So we're into like the last two hundred years, three hundred years. Um, so the English, who mostly received their coffee through trade, uh, utilized their Levant Company which then became the British East India Company, so I was right, uh, to get all of their coffee from India. However, the Dutch still held a vice on the Indian market. So by the 18th century, the British eventually only focused on textile trade in India. So the Dutch East India Company folded at some point, and then it became a different company, and that's how it lived on. But it makes sense to me that like the British maybe couldn't put their own plantations in India at that point. So around this time as well, the British began to switch to tea as their preferred caffeinated beverage. So that 
transition happened, I think, a little bit kind of just because they couldn't establish a stronghold market of their own. They had to buy coffee off of the Dutch. So it's like they had tea readily available. Yes, there was no tariffs. There was no no taxation on it. They were able to take it out of their colonies and bring it home. Well, in tea, you can grow a lot more tea than you can coffee, like just substantially more. And at that point, too, especially by the 1800s, you know, you had we had shipping at that point. China was a was a recognized place as far as importing tea. You know, they were the main exporter. So and it was easy because you could get it. You could get it places by land travel. You did not have to ship it from India all the way around. You know, like getting it from India to Britain was tough because it had to go through Amsterdam. Coffee had to go through Amsterdam. Like it isn't like it is now where you send it to a country just because you can ship it. Back then, if you bought coffee, it was probably it would have to have gone through the Netherlands first. So America, we were the last to get coffee because, well, we're new, we're newish, and in the because world. we at this time, by the time we were being colonized by the British, their main drink of choice was tea. At this point, they had kind of resigned to the Netherlands in terms of coffee trade yes. and had kind of accepted their fate with tea. Mm-hmm. So we were drinking more tea than we were coffee. Yes. And there's a really interesting reason as to why America's cup is coffee. So um, like you said, we're getting all this tea from the British. And then what happens? Tariffs and taxes and no taxation without representation because of the Boston Tea Party. Tariffs had caused the price of tea, which was at the time even more important of a commodity than coffee, to skyrocket in the British colonies. So this is what we learn about in history class in like the fifth grade. So it was out of pure patriotism, it's thought, that the people of the future United States switched to drinking coffee because of the Boston Tea Party. And ever since the Boston Tea Party, coffee has been America's hot drink of choice. So it's quite possible that politics have made coffee who what it is today in America. And what a drink it's become. I mean, you know. Good on you, patriots. Yeah. Good on you for dumping all that tea in the Boston River and then becoming mass holes. It's great. <laughs> no, my boyfriend's from Massachusetts. <laughs> my girl meanwhile my girlfriend from maine maine totally yeah. agrees <laughs> so that's kind of where we get to as far as like the early 20th century and that's i know how you we get, have some stuff yeah to talk especially about the too. spread of coffee throughout the world its origins its discovery and then we get to how it became such a big deal because obviously uh with the Boston Tea Party and switching over to coffee it still it it was drank because it was cheap but it wasn't a mass produced thing it right. wasn't something that everybody was waking up having in the morning that was tea pretty much when they when that happened and when they stopped drinking tea they switched over mostly to beer uh as as sure. a source of of beverage uh coffee really wasn't that big of a thing So what I wanted to go over are what we call the three waves of coffee in mostly American history. Now, I can't remember who the 
this was uh, coined by who this, the three waves of coffee was coined by um but it first starts in the industrial revolution so even though there were coffee shops around as early as the 1730s in America, uh, they were associated with mostly political intrigue, male debauchery, and unfortunately, you know, women weren't allowed unless they worked there. Sure. So this was kind of more the idea of what we get from, you know, a tavern or a pub. It wasn't mm -hmm. the intellectual coffee houses that were first established and what we think of today, um, especially compared to uh, tea houses of the time, which were calm, peaceful. They were family friendly, men, women, children. Sort of upper, all kind of upper class. Yeah, too. for the, the more posh tea houses, like high tea, yeah. um, a very British thing. But even for like some of the working classes, there were still enough tea houses around. Um, but those were the only ways that, you know, women and children and kind of younger people of society were able to be introduced to hot beverages. Um, and of course, this is particularly true in England, where tea was more easily accessible than coffee and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, so, but as the Industrial Revolution began to speed up in America, there was really one major problem. And I kind of mentioned it before. People were just drunk. Uh, sure. So coffee and tea was not as widely consumed as you might think, and most people, in order to drink water that was safe, were doing it through alcohol. So yes. well, yeah, beer is. I mean, even in in Egyptian time, is cited as you know why did everyone drink beer? Okay, well, it must be made clear though that beer in Egypt was not like the ipa you get at your favorite it's not a 7.2 percent alcohol yeah, no, ipa it would be this more like 2.5 or, or lower less like yeah. 2.5 i think was the most is it on most servings yes yeah. but uh when you consider that this is what people were drinking uh people were getting like even as far back as egyptian times were getting paid in essentially beer. growlers of beer yeah um it's, this it's is you know true, this yeah. is what people drank because it gave it took a little bit of the edge off but mostly it was safe to drink so this is what a lot of americans were drinking at the time especially as the industrial revolution came around which as you can imagine is a pretty dangerous spot to be in with all those machines yes i did want to mention quickly scribes were paid in beer and i think that's really funny yes <laughs> some scribes were. i wish we still were in some respects hey. but we're paid in money and we can use that money on yeah beer. it's egyptian the egyptian money system was very fair <laughs> extremely fair almost a little too fair like when you sit and read those hieroglyphs anyway go yeah. along <laughs> um so and the other big thing is that one of the most popular foods of this time or at least sustainable foods for the working class was a breakfast called beer soup which is, I'm sure, a Dustin disgusting... favorite. <laughs> it is, I'm sure, Shut a up. disgusting mixture of eggs, beer, and batter. But Ugh. essentially, this mixture, this concoction, uh, is was cheap. It was filling, and it was most importantly when sanitary. You say batter. I'm literally imagining someone taking like a Pyrex bowl, <laughs> dumping in a Bud Light, some like Hungry Jack, and eggs. <laughs> and just whisking it up. Yeah, I'm beer soup. I mean, yeah, I'm guessing like porridge, but with Come beer your, and your some beer eggs. Soup. But yeah, you got protein from the eggs. You got um a belly full from the batter, I guess, oh, and then you use it beer. was purified. Yeah, it, it had purified. beer in it. Yeah. <laughs> so 
again, we keep reiterating that really the only clean drinking thing, drinking liquids yeah. were either boiled, so coffee or tea, or fermented, so beer, wine, or liquor. So because of this high consumption, beer was a, a main drinking source or breakfast source, and many workers in the Industrial Revolution, from men working the furnaces to women sewing cloth to kids running the post, everyone was working under kind of a constant buzz. Yeah. Not everyone, a but constantly a good unsafe amount. environment buzz. Yes, and we are we already know about cotton the horrors of the industrial milk. revolution and God. working conditions and unpaid labor and overworking and kids working and all that kind of stuff. And if you yes. add on to that pretty much a constant state of tipsiness, that's a really dangerous work environment. No wonder people f- fell into like mills. What happened exactly. to Jimmy? Oh, he fell in the mill. Oh, oh he had, how many beer soups did he have this morning? Four. Jeez, oh, that's, that's probably that's why. twelve eggs. <laughs> <laughs> so, when we talk about first waves, this is where coffee really steps in and starts to influence culture, specifically in the U.S. Yeah. So as coffee production and brewing methods ramp up, restaurants, inns, and workhouses start offering it as a substitute for beer or beer soup. And as you might expect, production really starts to ramp up with it. We get to a point where workers say they'd rather be jittery than overdrunk. Um, so you could say that coffee literally made the Industrial Revolution wake up. I mean, yeah, it's it absolutely did. It's fitting. And, you know, I love I love the sort of story of the Industrial Revolution, especially on the British side, because it started really picking up its pace right at the beginning of the Edwardian era in 1901 or two. I think it was 1901. But there was this great quote that um, (laughs) that like uh, when it's like when Queen Victoria died, all like the old men died with her. So it's like a quote that basically means that like. England was ready to get with it after the death of Queen Victoria. And it's interesting you talk about how coffee basically kind of was a fuel. It's interesting to think about how, you know, the Industrial Revolution was such a wake-up call and such a fast-moving time because mm-hmm. electricity was right on the brink. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Coal, electricity. Coal, electricity, steam power. You oil, know, you get ship things. cruise liners for the first time. Mm-hmm. and you're able to import things quickly, you know, and I just think it's an, I think it's amazing. The industrial revolution is such an incredible thing to read about. Cause it's just like, it, it's our Renaissance. I feel like mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. yeah. And with this obviously higher consumption of coffee comes more coffee houses popping up all over the place, especially around dense populations in large cities. But with this boom, you start to see a shift from that kind of hostile, debauched drinking houses to places where people can gather, they can talk news and politics and have these natural discussions. So again, kind of back more, not so much to that kind of scholarly um, look like it was uh, in the Ottoman Empire, but just more calm, more social houses. It's like appropriately social. Appropriately social, yes. So, and especially as the, they are more diverse across, you know, gender and um, class. Sure. Um, And even potentially some places, maybe not so much race, but nationality. So we think like, you know, Irish, Italians, like 
they consider those different races at the time yes. almost. Um, so you get this kind of mixture of ideas and cultures and religions and backgrounds and all this kind of stuff in these uh, coffee houses. Uh, and you don't have this hostility, this aggression that you might at a tavern because they aren't drinking intoxicating liquors. Yes. They're drinking, you know, uh, coffee, which They're helps drinking stimulate them. The broth of Satan. <laughs> no. <laughs> I just like that it was always like an evil thing until it wasn't. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's not evil now. It's fine. Yes. <laughs> and another major part of co coffee consumption that happens during the Industrial Revolution is, like many other things in the Industrial Revolution, a monopoly on coffee production and distribution. Uh, in the U.S. specifically is when we see the formation and rise of the two biggest brands in coffee history, Folgers and Maxwell House. Did you know that the heiress of the Folgers fortune was killed by Charles Manson? I did not. She was. Yeah. Was in, that a in the Manson murders? Was that a specific target or just no, a happenstance? No, she was just there. Wow. Well, speaking of celebrities in a fashion and coffee, the biggest celebrity for Maxwell House, uh, in fact, the slogan for Maxwell House, good till the last drop, comes from none other than President Teddy Roosevelt. Um, he was a massive fan of coffee, specifically Maxwell House, and... Um, you could definitely say he's probably one of the first celebrity endorsements. Uh, he was as actually also quoted as saying, this is the stuff I like to drink when I shoot bears. <laughs> Which I think it's not as snappy a logo as good till the last drop and probably harder to, you know, put on a, a Maxwell house, drink it and shoot <laughs> bears. But uh, I think... I think that's more of a fun quote uh, from Teddy Roosevelt, but it gives you an idea of how much you really like this stuff. Roosevelt started drinking coffee when he was a soldier and would frequently pack it during long trips and explorations of the West. And by the time he became president, he was reportedly drinking an estimated one gallon of coffee a day. Oh my God. Yes. But he also loved his coffee sweet. This is where it gets oh, like God. terrifying. This is like Teddy. Go ahead. Just Use, go ahead. Let me just. <laughs> Finish this. Go ahead, do it. Using <laughs> upwards of seven lumps of sugar per cup of coffee. So oh that equals God. that equals about 28 grams of sugar or close to a fourth cup of sugar per cup of coffee. <laughs> or if he did drink a gallon of coffee a day, about two and a fourth or two and a quarter cups of sugar every day in his coffee if he's consuming a gallon. Oh my lord. Again, these are, you know, reports and all that kind of stuff, but it's Teddy Roosevelt. So at this point, didn't he I die like two years after leaving the presidency? I can't remember. I think he died pretty quick. Was he the one that got shot? Giving and he kept a giving a speech. And he kept giving a speech. That's Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Well, he, it's because he was a bear himself. So he wasn't. He said he wasn't lethally wounded because his speech caught most of the blow. Like. Was it a speech or a Bible in his pocket? Maybe it was, it was a Bible. Something like something that. Something was in his pocket it, that stopped the, the bullet, bullet, but from, not completely. Yeah. But he was still able to give. I didn't he continue going for something like an hour? Yeah, like like he finished the entire speech. It was at the beginning of the speech, yes. I believe, that it happened. Jesus. Any in any case, so clearly he was a huge fan of coffee. Uh, it was a major endorsement. It really helped put coffee as kind of the American, the everyday drink into most social circles. Mm -hmm. I mean, if the president's drinking it. Why you know, would we say so no to crazy, that? It's so crazy, the celebrity influence with drinks in particular. Like, 
Joan Crawford with Pepsi. Pepsi would not be where it is if it wasn't for Joan Crawford's publicity. Or mm-hmm. Teddy Roosevelt with coffee. Or mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, Santa with Coca-Cola. I mean, you know. Polar bears with Coca-Cola. Polar bears with Coca-Cola. Yeah, but now all in, in the middle of all this, you know, coffee craze, what happens but war breaks out in Europe. And eventually the U.S. joins in the fight, but not without its morning cup of coffee. And the only way that happened was due to a Japanese immigrant and chemist, Satori Kato, Kato, K-A-T-O, Kato, Kato. Kato. yeah, Satori Kato, Kato, working out of Chicago. Aha! Of course. Chicago pushing us through World War One. So in 1901, Kato was able to develop a soluble coffee extract, and later that year, he handed out samples of this drink, this concoction, at the Pan American Expo in Buffalo. And two years later, he received a patent for his instant coffee. So this was really what helped the troops, was instant coffee. Yes. So in 1910, Anglo-Belgian inventor George Washington, no relation, was (laughs) able to successfully mass-produce instant coffee, and he established the G. Washington Refining Company, where he later became one of the main distributors and government contracts during the war. So soldiers even came to calling it a Cup of George after the founder. Mm. This, of course, eventually turned into Cup of Joe based on the common moniker G.I. Joe. Um, That happened during World War II, but at the time during World War I, it was called a Cup of George. Of course, this was just a a very minor nickname for coffee, uh, but specifically for instant coffee. It's not like you could walk into a diner in 1920 and say, I'll have a cup of George. Yes, this is is something that uh, troops would have said to each other (laughs) um, on on the battlefield or in the trenches, as it were. So World War I saw this massive boom in coffee production, um, specifically for instant coffee. Uh, Not only was it popular at home in the U.S. because it was less acidic than regular uh, brewed coffee, but it had a longer shelf life. Mm. Uh, than standard coffee and uh, and that's obviously very important because they would have to ship it over to Europe which would take almost six months from roasting it before it would actually reach the lips of a soldier wow uh, yeah so six months so it had to have a very long shelf life plus regular coffee needed boiling water to brew and the rolling kitchens as they were called in the trenches and camps uh, weren't able to properly keep up so it had to be uh, a coffee that could be brewed quote unquote but dissolvable, brewed basically yes dissolvable in lukewarm or tepid water they didn't always have sure. hot water uh so it needed to be able to just dissolve like that um and instant coffee was the answer so the military also uh spent a lot of time figuring out how to distribute instant coffee uh they tried sticks tablets and like other kind of capsule things you know something they could just drop in and it would dissolve mm-hmm. think of like you know um uh little energy tablets or vitamin c's you know yeah things like that um but nothing stayed together essentially nothing was able to actually uh keep its body Mm. in transportation um because it would get too moist so and you know start to dissolve yeah Yeah, or, or dissolve yeah eventually they found that small envelopes or small packets were the best way to distribute coffee while still keeping it fresh and moisture free so to this day instant coffee is still being sold in packets because it's just the best delivery system or little glass jars if you you get mine yes for the one i make but if you get the individual ones yeah you like i like nescafe is the Mm -hmm. one because i grew up with those yeah and i think each packet was about a half 
ounce of coffee yeah. and that could make i think half a cup okay so about eight six to eight count ounces sure maybe less well a half a cup is four ounces uh well coffee cup coffee a standard cup. coffee cup which is i think about eight ounces so it probably would have been about four ounces sure okay so but yeah that's as pretty much as much as they got um so in terms of how much coffee we're thinking nationally um the daily output for coffee back home so in the u.s was six thousand pounds for the country so this is a daily output this is how much coffee the the nation is drinking but by 1918 near the end of the war the u.s was ordering nearly 37,000 pounds a day of coffee for the war effort that's crazy i unfortunately didn't look up another way to kind of quantify that to give you a better visual image but that's just a a lot lot that's a lot i mean a lot of people died Mm -hmm. in that war Mm -hmm. i mean god yeah so uh, it is safe to say by the close of World War I, most adult Americans were drinking coffee. Uh, but unfortunately, when the Great Depression hit in 1929, daily staples like coffee became hard to come by for most Americans. Uh, but to give you an idea of how much coffee was a part of daily life, soup kitchens that sprang up across the nation would usually serve you a bowl of soup, bread, and a hot cup of coffee. Chicago's own Al Capone served hot coffee and a donut at his Big Al's kitchen for the needy. So when we think of the infamous mobster Al Capone, he actually did have his own soup kitchen that he developed during uh, the Great Depression because naturally he had the money to. Well, and he would Al- serve yeah. hot donuts and a hot cup of coffee. Al Capone, you know, besides the fact that he died because he wouldn't get a penicillin shot to treat his chlamydia, he... Is interesting in Chicago history because he was liked by the city. By Chicagoans. He was a big part of popularizing the city. I, I really need to read an Al Capone book. Yeah. That's but his history. You crazy. notice here, too, I find it funny that uh, talking about Al Capone's soup kitchen and that instant coffee was developed in Chicago. Chicago's played a good, a yeah, good history. Yeah, Chicago's had a nice the, hand in, in the coffee uh, spectrum. Yeah, in coffee history coffee in the U.S., which is really cool. Um, so then we live in Chicago, by the way, yes. for those of you who don't yes. are connecting the two dots or like, why are they so obsessed with Chicago? Yes. Like, uh, so after, uh, the depression ends, we get back on our feet, uh, by the time America enters world war two coffee production is at an all time high. Uh, Americans are consuming about 20 pounds of coffee per person per year. I don't have the statistics on what it is wow. now. I feel like it might be more, honestly. Could um, be. But naturally, coffee is so still instrumental to American soldiers. So yes. we had that huge boom of it during uh, World War One. The coffee trade and production has stabilized a little bit more, so now we have a better idea of what we're getting into in terms of coffee on the front lines. Yes. Uh, But unfortunately, that came at a cost to Americans at home. By 1942, the U.S. government limits coffee producers to 75% of their commercial production, so 25% needs to be left aside for the go- for government use right. uh, to send to the war. Um, and by the end of 1942, coffee rationing, one of the first official rationings by the government, is in full effect, and uh, Americans are consuming about 50% of what they normally would with one pound of coffee per every five weeks. 
per household being the nationwide restriction. So I think a pound of coffee is a pretty standard bag of coffee. Yeah. Right. The bag of coffee you bought is, is, uh, 12 ounces. So it's, it's a cup. It's, it's a three quarters of a pound. Yes. So imagine a standard bag of coffee that you pick up at most grocery stores lasting you five weeks. Oh my God. I don't think that would last me a week. A pound. Okay. I do buy 16 ounce bags. The Cameron Mm -hmm. stuff I buy, I buy in 16 ounce bags. That lasts, that one bag lasts me and Dylan two weeks tops. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. One bag, five weeks per customer or per household so you feel so for you know, a group of maybe two three four yeah. people at times yeah i mean if you think because at this time i don't know how how young kids are drinking coffee at this time but if you think the parents in a household maybe they're like oldest son or daughter who's like high school college age i would say high school age is usually the yeah. entrance because like, i feel like yeah that's about so that's three people let's say three people adulthood was ish people in a household drinking coffee that's a lot keep in mind the husband might not be there because that yeah you know this is prior to the baby boom too Mm -hmm. of the united states so Mm -hmm. we haven't yet seen billions of people in the world and unfortunately the thing for uh, the troops fighting, especially over in the European theater, was that shipping was really limited for them, too. So it was the production on the U.S. side was still going strong, but a lot of it was kept aside for the troops. But getting it to them created a whole nother problem um, because obviously they needed any shipping supply supplies going over to Europe to be for munitions and actual food and things like that. Right. Uh, so they had limited availability or space on these transportation ships. And of course, the constant fear of German U-boats in the Atlantic. Yeah. So coffee was kind of hard to come by when, once you actually got to Europe, or at least American coffee was very hard to come by. Um, obviously, cafes and restaurants in Europe that might have been decimated as, you know, as troops were rolling through might have had some leftovers, but probably very few and far between. And I'm guessing probably once the troops got through those towns, they were drinking more of the alcohols than they were drinking the coffee. That's a fair shot to take, yeah. <laughs> yes, but back home, people were doing essentially what they could to stretch their coffee as far as possible. Uh, Life magazine, it's uh, produced multiple articles on how to save coffee and how to stretch it. Uh, Mm. They gave tricks on how to either consume less coffee with the same strength as usual or the same amount of coffee with weaker strength. So different kind of brewing methods. Was this when like chicory got added to coffee? So using less uh, during each brew. And they also made suggestions about adding chicory and double brewing. So you'd brew the coffee and then pretty much just brew it again yeah so um i know a lot of people now if we like are out of coffee and we don't have any more we're like well it's still in there from yesterday i'll just brew that like that's a last ditch effort but during wartime in america i think uh, another one was eggshells too potentially because it had like some i don't know what they thought it was a filler but mm-hmm. yeah i know i i've heard of eggshell like just plain ground eggshells as a filler for coffee i didn't find that one but that'd be an interesting filler yeah anything to kind of like build that up i wouldn't be surprised if people put potentially black tea in there too sure. i know it's a bit of a different flavor palette but like just to kind just of to help get... build the well caffeine and there's acidity. also the whole thing too when we get into 
well, this kind of goes back a little bit into the earlier 20th century, but there was the whole issue of processed manufactured foods. There was no checking system. There was no FDA back then. So coffee, if you bought a bag of coffee, it could very well be a bag of dirt. Like, and you did with a little bit of coffee in it. Mm-hmm. And coffee was among one of the most adulterated foods in the early 20th century. And Folgers, again, played a huge hand, just like Heinz did with ketchup. Because mm-hmm. ketchup was like, app- was basically like apple rinds, you know, like apple <laughs> rinds with ground up, bull- you know, like. But uh, Folgers had a big hand in selling coffee and actually like bringing consumers to coffee and trusting a brand so to speak yeah. but anyway that that i thought that was worth mentioning yeah <laughs> um, and then drinking coffee out so we've talked a lot about coffee in the home drinking coffee out diners restaurants most of them would offer bottomless cups of coffee like that sure. was just kind of standard in america and now of course they were forced to go to one cup of coffee per customer right kind of a thing so everybody is dialing back and not to be too on the nose eleanor roosevelt produced a weekly radio show from 1941 to 1942 called over our cups uh, coffee cups over our coffee cups so she was producing essentially this weekly radio show this address to the nation uh called over our coffee cups um to say you know like hey everything's fine we're doing great. the roosevelts they like their radio addresses they you really know did. fdr with his fire side chats explaining to us how banking worked and then eleanor with her stingy programming only eat beans (laughs) only eat worms i think this was this was (laughs) she did she was so like we can't have anything good yeah i think this was i think this uh over our coffee cups was eleanor roosevelt's like essentially answer to fireside chats it was maybe possibly for the women of the mm-hmm. home yeah. you know really to have a reassurance to, to them and yeah. to hear a female voice of authority eleanor was a champion of uniting women in in the united states i mean fdr and eleanor they're incredible just absolutely to read about absolutely um but thankfully by the mid uh 19 by by mid 1943 uh, fdr announced that coffee would come off the rationing list by the year's end and it it was first to go on the list. It was also the first to come off the list. Of you get rationing. coffee, but no more steak. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. By war bonds. By war bonds. <laughs> so now the, the Great Depression and World War II saw hard times for coffee consumption. With Americans, it did create um, a whole new drink. This is actually one of my favorite parts about World War II is the creation of a new drink a new espresso drink is the americano um this drink was created in italy uh, or italian cafes for american soldiers who didn't like the strong acidic taste of espresso uh so they didn't like drinking you know just a single shot of espresso so they would ask the cafe workers to dilute it in hot water making a small two three ounce uh draw of espresso into something that resembled a standard cup of coffee um and naturally it became called the americano after the american soldiers who requested it so that's probably one of my favorite stories about the creation of a drink um or about (coughs) drinks in world war ii uh again like i said earlier the term cup of joe also came from the american gi joe yes as well 
Um, so that is kind of coffee through American's history with wars, or at least the two big ones. Sure. But we're still not done with the first wave of coffee. Oh so my the gosh. first wave of coffee is this mass, essentially mass production and uh, and mass consumption. Uh, but the last kind of leg of it was at-home brewing methods. Uh, commercials would start popping up on radios or on TVs, advertising coffees, uh, coffee brands, especially to uh, veterans of World War II and maybe Definitely. some even of World War I. Yeah. Um, I think the, their biggest selling slogan was to drink coffee like you did in the war because that's what made you successful. The idea is like sure. coffee made you successful over in Germany or over in the specific Pacific theater. Um, it's going to make you successful now that you're back at home. Well, and I, I wonder if some of that too, there's definitely that, you know, it's interesting to read the history about a post-war era because, you know, we didn't really have a way of helping soldiers dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder or inability to go to work, you know, depression, anxiety. And I honestly think, I think coffee was still kind of seen as like a cure-all. If you have a stomach problem, drink a cup of coffee. If you're feeling down, drink a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. If you... It perks you up, it peps you up. If you can't focus, drink a cup of coffee. Exactly. Yeah, I think it may have been sort of the not... It, it, it was kind of like the medicine, yeah. you know. I mean, when we way. think back all the way into, you it's know, origin. the 13th century. Yeah, definitely. Like, they were selling it as this kind of miracle potion, this miracle mm -hmm. uh, elixir, if you will. Um, but other things in the 50s and 60s that really uh, put coffee everywhere was the invention of the drip coffee maker um which made it safer and easier to make coffee in the home most people were using stovetop percolators yeah. uh in the home uh which you had to kind of monitor a little bit more watch and of course on an open range you had to like just be more specific but in the 50s especially we saw this boom in at-home appliances oh. and of course the coffee maker was what a one boom of those it was um so you start seeing it more uh, in the homes also coffee makers can make more coffee at a time where percolators make right like probably four to six ounces yeah. at most coffee makers are making the 12 cup coffee maker 12 cup coffee maker right yeah. this becomes standard in most people's homes and of course in the 1950s and 60s we see the rise of the american teenager and what do american teenagers need but a place to gather that is not their parents house so naturally this bar. becomes or a bar <laughs> because they can't drink yet uh, so naturally this becomes diners um coffee houses things like that and this is actually where we start to see the rise of restaurants like waffle house and denny's so mm. these actually come out of the boom of the 1950s and 60s you know when we think about like malt shops these were these malt shops were actually like waffle houses and denny's sure. these diners that also served ice cream kind of a thing so that is really the gist of the first wave. So it starts as early as the Industrial Revolution and takes us into the 50s and 60s. It's all about the mass um, production and consumption of coffee, kind of injecting it into daily life in America. Yeah. In the 1970s, we see the second wave of coffee hit from one of the most well-known if not the most well-known name in coffee, Starbucks. Uh, if the first wave of coffee is about that mass production and consumption, then the second wave is all about coffee 
culture. So this is where we see coffee culture really starting to come into play. Mm -hmm. Um, So with the creation of Starbucks and the rise of coffee shops, we begin to see a focus on the culture and the experience. I keep seeing the word experience, coffee experience, drinking experience, store experience, and ambiance pop up. So by this time, most Americans are used to the regular flavor of coffee. um, And what they want now is a more specified coffee taste and aroma. So espresso drinks um more kind of cultivated uh this is flavors was this maybe the first time like coffee mate came out you know not too long after that you had creamer rather than cream so we'll get to that in in this phase as well so you have not not only people ordering coffee but ordering espresso drinks so like lattes and cappuccinos it's not Um, just drip anymore yes so eventually these coffee flavor profiles go past just espresso and milk. Uh, and we begin to see the rise of coffee cocktails using added syrups and preparation techniques to create custom and intriguing new drinks. So you mentioned Coffee Mate, the flavored uh creamers and things like that it's during this time that we start to see the rise of syrups and other flavors come in so instead of just a latte you'd have a mocha or you'd have a vanilla latte or rose petal lavender vanilla latte i mean that's that's more stuff you see nowadays but um that's essentially what was going on um at these coffee shops at places like starbucks you see these kind of more specified fun Uh, intriguing coffee drinks and when you think about the time that this was becoming popular so the 80s and 90s where these coffee shops were really starting to step up um a lot of people were consuming soda at this time yes so you had probably diehard coffee drinkers who would drink these you know just coffee and milk drinks but in order to bring in new customers and bring in um new interest and stuff like that you had to add these new flavors and profiles and uh types of drinks so cold coffee things like that sure. iced coffee uh in order to get these these people who probably really had no business uh prior with drinking coffee they're probably just like soda people the youth yes um yeah. So you had to kind of challenge that soda market, especially in the 90s when you see like the rise of like Mountain Dew and and Sprite and like all these other like non-cola based sodas. Yes. And energy drinks and things like that. Uh, so they had to, to essentially compete with these. So they're adding all these in different flavors, making these uh, cocktails and stuff like that with coffee to kind of grab onto that market. Um, however, the second wave of coffee was... Uh, as much about the place you were drinking the coffee as the coffee itself. Mm -hmm. So coffee shops had become huge social hubs and gathering places for all kinds of people from all walks of life. And they were sprouting up all over cities, all over the place in every neighborhood. I mean, you just watch shows from the 90s like Friends or Frasier, and you'll see how integral coffee shops are to kind of the lifeblood of these cities. Well, and even then, you know, I think Barnes & Noble had a huge... huge hand in it because it's a place where you go to buy books it's literally combining intellect with coffee and i know starbucks had a huge hand with barnes and noble because i think was barnes and noble the brand that took starbucks national first 
It might have been. It, well, I know it was for places like us in like Nebraska. We Absolutely. did not have standalone Starbucks. No, they were only in. They were only in Barnes, Barnes and, and Nobles Noble. back then. And I'm yeah. sure we well, I'm, we'll do listeners an entire episode on Starbucks. I'm sure yeah. it's a whole monolith on its own. And we'll get into that at that time. But yeah, Starbucks uh, was kind of the rise of this, this big second wave. Um, and with that, we also saw this boom in coffee shop architecture. So when we think about business design, um, restaurant design, coffee shop specific style of architecture really became its own thing. So uh, honestly, when I think of coffee shop architecture, I think of like Dutch modern design from like the 50s and 60s. Yeah. That kind of like nice, sleek, light. But also, I mean, Starbucks kind of has this dark wood. The thing I think of is I think of the 2000s coffee shop, which coffee shops now adapt to their location now it's about looking like the place they're in Mm -hmm. but back in the 2000s it was about you know coffee was the big bold beverage so if you went to a coffee house you know i grew up in the midwest so i imagine like you know cups emblazoned on the walls and lots of like dark tables uh really like almost like a panera (laughs) <laughs> kind of like what a yeah. Panera looks like now. Yeah. And a Panera technically is kind of a coffee shop. Like. Yeah. So they're really making it about the experience of going to a coffee shop. So yeah. during the second wave, we see this huge focus on specialty coffee drinks and coffee cocktails, but also a huge surge in coffee culture and ambiance. That's another word that kept popping off Yes. Um, or popping up uh, a lot. Um, and really this whole creation of a whole new type of American culture or subculture or whatever it may be. I mean, it was getting pretty mainstream. So I would say it's a mainstream American oh, yeah. culture is the coffee shop culture. But of all the things that the first and second wave offered for coffee, they were skipping over one major part of the production, the coffee beans themselves. Thus, the third wave begins. So starting as early as the 1980s, but not blossoming until the mid 2000s, niche communities of coffee lovers started to go back to the source and focus solely on the growing, harvesting, and roasting of coffee beans. So they are essentially searching for a better quality cup of coffee. So instead of all the culture and flavor profiles and coffee specialty drinks and cocktails and things like that they just wanted a pure cup of coffee so you see this turnover um i I almost think going back to the roots of what coffee is why we like it so much in the first place i think it i think of it more as kind of the farm to table movement because coffee got so processed by the mid-2000s because Mm -hmm. of starbucks Mm -hmm. and duncan you know the national the national brands coffee chains it almost to me it it was that idea it's that idea of instead of taking something mediocre and punching it up all the time why don't we greatly improve the quality and knowledge we have about what it is itself which is exactly what the farm to table movement is about Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways for me at least but I, i think that's interesting that we just you know your perspective is kind of that and to me it's like oh it's so much about food in general yeah you know yeah so you take it but i i agree it's about this kind of taking the mass production sheen of it away and going back to that like we want to grow quality stuff we want it to be environmentally friendly economically friendly small business small business small batch all these kind of like more local 
some might say hipster kind of vibes to coffee. Sure. Uh, but in 1982, uh, we see the Specialty Coffee Association of America um, give rise, and they essentially were seeking to find and cultivate coffees with better flavors, growing methods, roasting, and brewing, all while uh, consumers are realizing that there are more flavors to coffee than just mm-hmm. coffee. So yeah. like we talk about with the coffee that we try at the top of our episodes using a V60, using a medium bros, this style of brewing comes out of third wave coffee. It's that discovery of specific flavor profiles from coffee mm-hmm. uh, that was developed during the third wave. So that's why we use it um, for our taste testing at the top of our episodes. Um, And of course, all this gave way to what we see in most coffee shops nowadays, a really intense focus on the bean itself. And this isn't every coffee shop, but more than likely the local coffee shops you're going to are going to be more focused on their individual coffees and their espresso drinks than they are on kind of, I don't want to call them frou-frou drinks but sure. these kind of like specialty cocktail kind of things you know, that you'd get from Dunkin or Starbucks. I would th- I think it's safe to say at this point that almost every city in America that has more than 100,000 people in it has its own coffee house that has a custom roast of their own. I think that's Absolutely. safe to assume by now. Yes. So what you also see too with this um third wave is a bump in lighter roasts. You have a bump in people who are making coffee on their own. So if you think of uh, the term a brew pub, so a brew pub is a a restaurant, a pub that actually brews its beer on site. So you kind of have this same thing with coffee houses, these third wave coffee houses that are maybe it's not on site necessarily, but they are roasting their own coffee and then serving it. Um, in their same restaurant. The Starbucks roastery in Chicago is the epitome of that idea. Yes. It's, so it's, yeah. it's, and again, it's back to that farm to table. Exactly. Right. There's no middleman. There's no impressive. production. There's yeah. no um, distribution. It's literally like made um, in this end of the building, served in this end of the building yeah. kind of a thing. Um, so you get that more farm to table. Um, but with that, you, of course, you get the lighter roasts because at the time, um, especially even with the rise of Starbucks, it was mostly medium to dark roasts, more on the dark side. Sure. Um, because they weren't focusing on the selected roasts of the beans with their flavors. They were just roasting the beans Got to it. get them to a certain point. Uh, mm-hmm. We also saw a bump in milk integration and latte art. So, you know, that kind of fancy the the ferns and the swans and all that kind of stuff comes out of this third wave as well uh we see a bump in manual brewing uh including the v60s chemex and aeropresses so Mm uh this kind of more specified really delicate kind of way of creating a single cup of coffee yes um and then we see a rise in single origin roasts so instead of blends where they're just harvesting as much as they can from anywhere and throwing them together you see single origins uh which means that the coffee has come from a single farm so everything is from the same place which means it's going to have a very specific taste Mm -hmm. to that region um and then off also as you mentioned before with the farm to table is sustainability in production and freshness transparency so this whole idea of presenting something that is sustainable that is ecological that is 
has fr- is fresh um that is fair trade you see fair, fair trade, trade really pop up everywhere say, yeah. um organic you know all these kind of buzzwords uh that we have nowadays this all comes uh in the third wave of coffee um so the u.s was definitely a leader in all this it, it has been the leader in this third wave mm-hmm. but it's also hit hard um in other areas across the world uh, specifically canada uh australia and of course much of europe so all these kind of old uh traditional coffee houses throughout europe are really kind of turning into i mean they're still there but then you have these kind of underground movements popping up sure uh with this third wave of coffee mostly in the nordic countries like sweden norway denmark but also places like germany yeah um we oh, were yeah. just in berlin a little over a year ago before all of the, world the whole world shut down shut down yeah. um which is another story for another time but berlin is kind of at the peak right now of their third wave coffee roasting and coffee shops so we got a really really good uh insight into kind of the height of that it seemed like a well-oiled machine there exactly. like it's not experimental it's the trend it, it is, is the it is happening thing it and not so much even just a trend but that is standard yeah like it's it's what it seemed every coffee shop we went into um that that was standard issue um when we think of some of the coffee shops in chicago if you really want to get like this decadent like beautifully done lattes with all the art there not every shop does it some places do it better than others but in berlin every single coffee shop yes that was the standard um it's like people had been training as baristas like going to culinary school uh before they're allowed to get step behind a bar yes um so that is the third wave of coffee and that's essentially where we are today Mm. um some places are going to have it more than others obviously bigger cities are going to be more impacted by third wave coffee production than smaller places but even when i'm thinking back home in lincoln nebraska um places like the mill the coffee house um crescent moon uh and i'm sure many others in the uh in the city are really starting to kind of adapt this this style of coffee yeah making we saw traces of it too i think even being a part of the teenage coffee shop culture where food was really becoming a part of i think coffee houses now are really adopting food too it isn't just about coffee it's also about having really good farm grown food and you know we saw that a lot and i think it's interesting to know now that you know we've seen the other side in another country but in america i still feel like we're 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 catching up mm-hmm. we're getting there but we're yeah. catching up but i do i do think of chicago like you said as a very big hub of coffee especially i know it's be, i know it's starbucks but we do have the roastery we do have a lot of independent places here and you know, it's like beer in a way. There's a lot of just different places to get different coffee. You mm-hmm. know, it's the selection's wide yeah. open here. Yeah, you'll really get a different experience um, at every single uh, place you'll go to. I mean, sure. I, uh, like I mentioned before, I worked at a place that used Intelligentsia coffee, and I thought we did a pretty good job of serving it, but then you go to an Intelligentsia coffee shop, and it's a whole nother that- level it's a whole experience of coffee consumption um and even metropolis which like we've said is one of our favorites their store though it does 
this kind of third wave, really good coffee very well. It's a little more on the, I want to say, uh, fast food side. Sure. Um, the intelligentsia, they really t- kind of take their time to craft a drink for you. Yeah. And Metropolis does that as well, but they do it at a quicker pace because they're it's, more of an in and out uh, it's, store. It, it adheres more to the convenience factor of exactly. coffee rather than the... Is what I was looking for. the the you know enjoyment time taking trying of coffee like intelligentsia would Mm -hmm. but you get that like i said we or like we've said you get that different experience with different yeah it doesn't sacrifice the quality yeah so if you want a quality cup of coffee to sit for a while you go to intelligentsia but if you want that same quality cup of coffee but you need it to go because you're late to work you go to Metropolis. If you're um, a trash human and, being like me, you go to this the Duncan at the Western Brown Line station at five o'clock in the morning. And all you need is something to wake and you Paneer up. Paneer makes my coffee very, very well. Yeah. But then on the way home, you might stop and stop and get a nice pick me up at uh, a more local place or something like that. Depends on so. how good my tips are. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad day. It's going to be Duncan again because then it's the dollar coffee. Mm hmm. But anyways, yeah, no, I think it's so interesting. I'm I'm anxious to see how the culture changes, especially with. I think celebrity coffee is becoming a a huge part of the third wave now. Celebrity endorsement. Duncan definitely has kind of the charge of that on the brand. And I don't know. I think it's interesting to see how social media influences coffee because now coffee has to be beautiful. Yeah, I'm. I'm honestly just waiting for uh, Ryan Reynolds to start his own coffee roasting. I'm company. half tempted I mean, to join has, his phone company. He has a phone company. He has a gin company. He sold the gin. He okay. sold aviation. I mean, yeah. he's made millions he of companies like that. It he's seems. Cool. So I'm waiting for him to jump on the coffee train. Yeah. But, um. Maybe someday we'll see. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, it's. I'm excited. You know, we've talked about these different waves of coffee. I'm excited to see what the fourth wave is. Yeah. If there is going to be a fourth wave, what is that going to look like? Sure, sure. Um, is it the coffee production that we have now, but at home? Is it going to be like home roasting? Um, I was going to say, I think, I think we can do a whole other episode about this, honestly. But I, if I would say just off the the top of my head, the future of coffee is definitely home espresso yeah and that's already started yeah and i think because you know history is cyclical in many ways what we saw with the first wave of coffee is mass production in these kind of coffee shops and 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 restaurants and stuff like that and then after the the wars we saw it at home yeah we saw this coffee production at home and then it went back to the cafes with the second wave with the rise of starbucks so i think this third wave has given us the tools to make that level of mm-hmm. coffee. And now we just need the technology, the at-home technology to catch the up. The affordable at-home affordable at technology. technology to catch up uh, for us to be doing it. Yeah, without I having totally to go agree. To a coffee shop. Well, so. that's amazing. That's it's I know this is y'all. I know this has been a long one, but hey. I've enjoyed everything. I think this is all so interesting. I've learned a lot. I did a bunch of research and I still learned a lot. I know. Me too. Yeah. Um, I do. So usually what we'll do at the end of every episode is we'll pick the topic for the next show. Now, since this is coming out on a premiere with three episodes, we won't do that until episode three. But do bear in mind, this is syllabus day. At the end of an episode, we will pick a topic to 
research for our next episode. However, with this episode, I'm just going to give you a fact. Because that's the other part of ending an episode. Unless you had more to talk about. No, um... I guess we could preview on the next episode. Yes, Just please. so you know what it's about. Um, we mentioned it earlier, but we are going to pretty much be discussing our own coffee journeys, as we like yeah. to call them. Uh, kind of dive more in depth into how Wesley and I got into drinking coffee, how mm-hmm. it became a part of our lives, how we use it every day, and also to just kind of talk more about how people get into coffee yeah um it's going to be more of a theorize and storytelling kind of episode probably shorter than this probably shorter as well um but we just wanted to give you in kind of a better in-depth dive as into us and why we're doing this exactly and why it interests us and how we think people get interested in this drink so that will be our next episode yes um so you have the luck of getting to listen to the next episode right away. So just listen to the next episode. There's no reason to like not binge this show. Absolutely. Um, but I do have, I will end this one with a fun fact for you. So I'll either do a myth, a fun fact or a legend or a tall tale, but today it's a fun fact. So though we usually consume coffee through the drink form, coffee cherries are completely edible and they have a bitter tart flavor. Yes. So for those of you wondering about what coffee actually is, what the plant actually is, it does come in what is called a coffee cherry. It is actually a fruit. Um, It's about the size of a grape, small grape, um, red. And when you when you very tart, if you were to eat it, we'll go through the whole process of how it goes from tree to cherry to bean to cup cup of coffee to cup of coffee. But in case you were wondering, you can eat coffee cherries whole they're not toxic they're not poisonous they are completely despite being bitter they're not poisonous it's one of caffeine is the trick one but anyways (laughs) thank you all so much for joining us on this on this first episode of coffee's on so much i'm really excited to learn all about coffee and do weird deep dives and all that kind of stuff i feel like it's one of those things that i thought i knew but i probably have no idea what i'm getting myself into you don't know anything (laughs) no it's great well perfect again thank you so much for listening to today's episode and we will see you next time